0: Please turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 4, and we left off in verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. It's good, you guys are holding me accountable. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we're desiring to be fed by you. We've come this morning to draw near to you, to hear your word. Lord, I thank you for the body of Christ and the fact that you've joined us together. You know us personally, you know us individually. As we look at this area of bitterness in our lives, we give you room to speak to us. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We know that we need you to lead us and to guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 12 has a real theme. I've been going through this chapter at a snail's pace. This is my third message in this chapter. I want to give you a quick review. It begins with that we're encouraged to run our race with our eyes fixed upon Jesus Christ. God wants us running. If you remember last week, one of the things that God does is he chastens us. He corrects us. He disciplines us so that we can run More effectively. And as we get into the second half of this chapter and finish out this chapter this morning, we really have a definition of the path that we're to be running on. There's two things. The first is to have peace in relationships, to pursue peace. And then the second thing is to relate to God through His grace. And both are very important as we run this race with the Lord. So let's begin in verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness. Without such, no one will see the Lord. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say pursue peace with people you like, people you get along with, people that treat you nice and respect you. It says pursue peace with all people. If you go back just a a prior verse, you'll see that God says make your path straight or make a level path to, to run on. And a straight path and a level path involves peace in human relationships. We can run more effectively when we have peace with God and we have peace with one another. But many times in order to achieve this peace, we have to pursue it. We have to go after it. And this word means to seek, to to put in effort. When a relationship starts to fall apart, what do you do? Do you flee? Do you run away? Do you fight? We all tend to have A normal response, but do we have a a godly response? And this morning, I would encourage you to commit to pursue peace in relationship, as much as depends upon you to live at peace with all men. Notice that it says, and holiness. So as we pursue peace, we're also pursuing holiness. We're applying our relationship with God to also our human relationships. And then it says, without which no one will see the Lord. This is interesting to me because the way that we relate to one another will affect the way that we see God. Because many times when we go through this process of being a peacemaker, remember Jesus taught us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. As we enter into this process, a lot of times we start to understand all that God has done for us, all that Jesus has accomplished on the cross in order for us to have peace with God. You get wronged, you wrong someone else and then you work through this hard work of having peace in a relationship and you're gonna see the Lord in a greater way. So it's not just about the human relationship. It's not just about the person that you have a disagreement with. It's ultimately an opportunity to see God in a greater way. And don't you wanna see God in a greater way? Isn't that your heart to say, God, I wanna have a greater knowledge and understanding of who you are. verse 15, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this, many become defiled. God says to look carefully. That means we're to examine our hearts. Here we are on this journey, on this race, and what are some things that could trip us up? One of them is the root of bitterness. So God says, examine your heart to see if you have this small root of bitterness that has come inside of you. I think that one of the most dangerous ground that we're in spiritually is when we get hurt, when we get offended, when we get sinned against. If we're not careful to forgive, then what happens? Bitterness enters in, it starts very small but it doesn't stay small, begins to grow and it defiles many. Jesus' teaching on forgiveness is very clear. He taught us in this way, in a story form. A man had a debt to be paid. The one that he owed comes to him and says, all right, it's time to pay up. I don't have the money. All right, so your wife, your kids, they're going to be sold as slaves. You're going to be put in jail. This man begins to beg, please forgive my debt. Could you imagine your wife and kids being slaves, being in prison? I don't have any money. Please forgive me. Mercy and grace, he's forgiven totally, completely. All the debt is paid. Wouldn't that be nice if some of the credit cards worked that way. Student loans worked that way. Home mortgage worked that way. It'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? Hey, it's all, it's all paid for. This man who is then forgiven, he goes and sees someone who owes him a small amount of money. He says, you need to pay up. I don't have the money to pay. Well, I'm gonna throw your wife and kids into jail. Begs for Mercy. But instead of extending the grace and the mercy that he'd received, he sticks it to him and ultimately then throws this man in prison that owes him money. The guy that forgave him hears about it and he's upset, rightly so, saying, look, it doesn't work this way. I extended you so much grace. I extended you so much forgiveness. Why have you not then given this to someone who owed you just a little bit? I have to extend what I've so freely received. And this is what I've found in my life, maybe you've found it in your life as well, is grace and forgiveness is great in my own life but it's hard to extend to others. I enjoy it from the Lord. I'm thankful for it from the Lord but I can have a difficult time giving it to someone else. And we need to be reminded of all that God has forgiven us. Think about it for just a moment. All we need is one week of material. We don't even have to go to our whole entire lives. Just this week, what has God forgiven you of and me of? Then it's totally unjust. It's totally not right for me then to not extend that to someone else. They're not even in the same category. All that God has forgiven me, then to extend it to someone else. This is the way that God puts it in Ephesians 4, 32. He says, be kind tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The Father forgave me because of Christ. It wasn't because of me. And so then I can extend this forgiveness to others based on who Christ is and who Jesus is. Notice what happens if we choose not to forgive. What does verse 15 tell us? Look closely, it says, it springs up, it causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. Bitterness never stays inside of your own heart. It extends to others. It's one of the most toxic things that can happen to a church. Not a church building. The building's not the church, it's one another. And if we get offended at another brother or sister in Christ and we get bitter and we choose not to forgive, we choose not to extend that forgiveness, it becomes a very toxic environment. It's the most dangerous thing that can happen in a marriage. Bitterness. Your spouse offends you, they hurt you, they treat you wrongly, forgiveness is not extended, and then there's this wall that is built up and you're committed to your marriage but you're living as separate roommates. It's very damaging in our relationship with our kids, that root of bitterness. It's damaging our relationship with our parents. It's damaging in every relationship possible. It never stays, it causes so much trouble. I think every soul knows the damage of bitterness man, I've had seasons in my life where I've been bitter and it affected me in a profound way. I think you can look back at your life and go, man, I I remember a time when I I was bitter. I'm sure that there's some area in our lives this morning where we need to extend forgiveness, where we're holding back this forgiveness that God has, has given to us. Allow the Holy Spirit to begin to speak to you and to work in your heart. It's never a choice Of feelings it's always a decision of obedience based on the will if you wait to forgive because you feel like it like oh I got the warm fuzzies with forgiveness I just feel like forgiving them you know on really small offenses it's pretty easy to forgive but if someone's deeply hurt you and wronged you you're not gonna feel like forgiving what are you gonna feel like doing getting them back wanting revenge so it's a choice of obedience catch this, if you change your mind, God will change your heart. But if you don't change your mind, God won't change your heart. You choose this morning to say, I'm going to forgive because God has forgiven me, and the Lord begins to work in your heart. Choose to forgive, choose to pray for that person. That is so difficult to do. That's been difficult for me to do in the past. All right, Lord, I'll start praying for him. God, bust their teeth in. Just, you get them, God. All right, I prayed for him. <laughs> and then you start feeling convicted. I don't think that's quite what God had in mind. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. What are the things that I desire in my life? Start to begin to pray that for them. God, would you bless their marriage? Would you bless the relationship with their kids? Would you provide for them financially? Would you give them a greater knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ? And over time, then God begins to change your heart. Also, with this decision of forgiveness, if you're like me, I'll choose to forgive this morning, but by this evening, all of the emotions of bitterness will come back, all of the emotions of revenge will come back, and I'll have to forgive again tonight, and I'll have to forgive again tomorrow morning. It's a continual decision to say, I am walking in forgiveness. I'm extending the grace that God has has given to me, and not allowing that bitterness to take root into our hearts and our lives. There were two monks. No, this is not a joke. There there was two monks. No, it sounds like a joke, but it's not a joke. Two monks. They were going to a neighboring village to help bring in the crops. They come to the, the river where the bridge normally was. It had been washed out. Here was an elderly woman that was standing on the side of the river. She couldn't cross on her own. So the first monk he says, Can we help you across? So they put their arms together and provide a place for her to sit and walk her across the the river. She's extremely thankful the monks continue on in their journey. About a mile down the road, the second monk is like, oh, my back is starting to hurt. Why couldn't that old lady get across the river by herself? And Why did you have to volunteer us? I didn't want to to do that. The first monk's just silent. Now they're five miles down. They're five miles walking. They've walked four more miles. And at this point, the, the second monk, he's just oh, my back, its all it's, oh, this is just killing me and now he's laying on the ground and moaning and crying about his back and the first monk finally says, do you notice I'm not complaining? Do you, why do you think I'm not, not complaining? And the first monk says, I put that woman down a long time ago and you're still carrying her. See, and a lot of times someone has hurt us 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 months ago, 5 days ago and we're still carrying it, and we know it. And the Holy Spirit's beginning to identify it in our lives, and we have a choice to make if we're gonna allow God to come in and pull out that root of bitterness, to extend that forgiveness. It's such a freeing feeling to let it go, to put it into God's hands, to give forgiveness that we've so freely received from the Lord. Verse 16, we have an example of someone in scripture who allowed bitterness to get the best of them lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Jacob and Esau, twins. Esau's the older, Jacob's the younger. God gives a prophecy and says that the older will serve the younger. I believe this is when bitterness started to begin in Esau's heart as he was growing up and he was hearing this prophecy from the Lord. I have an older brother that's 22 months older than me, he's my best friend, and we are extremely competitive with one another, especially growing up. You could probably put us in the room today and I would fight to win at all costs. It doesn't matter if it's Candy Land, <laughs> as now we both have young kids, or a game of basketball, or who can eat the most hamburgers, somebody's gonna win, right? So you can imagine Jacob and Esau growing together and there might have been some times if Jacob was a normal brother, which he probably was, he says, do you remember what God said? The older's gonna serve the younger, that's gonna be pretty cool, right? At some point, the root of bitterness got a hold of Esau's heart and his life to eventually he becomes a fornicator and a profane person. We don't get to the place where our person is profane where we're living in a lifestyle of sexual sin, it's, it's a process, and normally it begins with hurt. The hurt happens, we don't forgive, we get bitter, our heart becomes hard, now all of a sudden, it's no big deal to enter into sexual sin. It's no big deal to be a profane person. It went back to Bitterness in our hearts and our lives. Do you see how dangerous it is? Do you see how it causes trouble and how important it is to, to forgive? For Esau, it got to the point where he sold his birthright for bean soup. That's what Genesis tells us. Bean soup. Do you know how disgusting bean soup is? Especially split pea soup. I know it's a good use of the ham bone, but it's like, ugh, yikes, you know, who, who invented this? But Jacob apparently had overcome the obstacles that just bean soup presents. And he had made some delicious bean soup. Esau was a man of that field. He loved to hunt. But Jacob, he was more a man of the kitchen. You know, he was in the kitchen cooking and here comes Esau and he smells this delicious soup. And he says, oh, I will give you my birthright for that bowl of soup. He trades in a lifetime of blessing, spiritual responsibility For just a momentary satisfaction, just a bowl of soup. How did he get to that place? Bitterness had taken a hold of him. And because bitterness had taken a hold of him, the momentary was more important than the long-term view. So it's a powerful example of not allowing bitterness to get the hold of us. And just to kind of share my heart with you and be a little bit more transparent this morning is, bitterness is so sneaky, so incredibly sneaky. I'd be completely lying through my teeth this morning if I would say there's not seasons where I've really struggled with bitterness. You don't even realize it. And then what happens is most people around you realize that you're bitter. You can kind of taste bitterness in someone's soul, but the person who's bitter, all they can think about is revenge. All they can think about is replaying that over and over. Jesus came to set the captives free. And you may be wrestling with an addiction to alcohol, addiction to drugs, a temper that you can't get under control, and it very well possibly could go back to bitterness. You've been hurt, and God's saying forgive and you can't let it go. The pain is so immense, you go to the bottle, you're medicating yourself with the bottle, you're medicating yourself with drugs. You're medicating yourself with with anger. You're medicating yourself with lust. And Jesus is wanting to set you free. And we came this morning thinking, oh, it's it's just another Sunday morning. I'm gonna do church and go on my way. And God's saying, no, I want you to forgive. And I know some of you have been through stuff that you never should have gone through. In a human perspective, there may be a reason for bitterness. It was never God's heart that you would go through that. Abuse. Your, your spouse treated you in a, a terrible way. Some of you have an ex husband, an ex wife, and, you, and your soul is just so consumed with bitterness. Some of you have had children that have treated you in such a disrespectful way. Some of you, the list just goes on and on. And the pain is real, but look at what Christ did for us. Look to the degree that he's forgiven us. It's not that there's not justice. It's that we aren't the ones who bring the justice. Revenge belongs to the Lord. We put God in his proper place and we're able to forgive. Forgiveness doesn't mean necessarily restoration and relationship. Restoration and relationship happens when there's repentance, when there's a change behavior if someone's in the downward cycle and pattern of sin it's going to be difficult to have a healthy relationship with them but you want to have a heart that has forgiven so that when they do repent you're more than ready to enter into relationship with them we choose to forgive whether that person is repented or not we say God you've forgiven me so I'm extending that forgiveness we continue with Esau in verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So later on, there's this regret and this remorse. Saying, please, I want the blessing. Esau did not say, oh God, I'm so sorry for allowing my heart to get bitter. God, I'm so sorry for all of this sin that I've entered into. I'm, I'm turning back to you. All he cared about was the consequence All he cared about was losing the blessing. If all we care about is the consequences that have resulted from our actions, we haven't come to a place of repentance and it's just tears. And God doesn't respond to tears. He responds to a change of heart and a change of direction. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 and 10 says this, "'Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, "'but that your sorrow led to repentance.'" for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The world's sorry all the time. Unbelievers are constantly sorry. They're constantly saying, I regret this and I regret that. But there's not that turning to the Lord. So there's a godly sorrow that produces repentance leading to salvation, where it's not just tears. And for Esau, it was simply tears. Then all of a sudden in verse 18, we shift to our second theme. The first theme was to pursue peace in all relationships. And now it's which mountain are you living on? Mount Zion or Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai is where the law was given. And Mount Zion is where Christ was crucified in Jerusalem. One is the law, one is grace, and I think this is really important as we run our race with the Lord, as we journey with the Lord. How do we relate to God? Do we relate to God like he's the employer? God, I did my quiet time today. I'm on track to read through the Bible in a year. I'm doing really good. I'm gonna read through the Bible twice this year. Okay, I, I think you're gonna bless me. I've been working really hard at work. I've, I've been putting in more than the other guy. God, I I think you're gonna bless me. I've been doing this and I've been doing that. And that's gonna lead to one of two things. It's gonna lead to pride when we fulfill our little system of rules or it's gonna lead to condemnation. Oh, I didn't read today. I didn't tithe like I should. I didn't give like I should. I blew it. Now, God, you must be angry with me. And it's so freeing to know that we relate to the Lord based on the new covenant of God's grace. And what happens here in Hebrews is now the author of Hebrews, he's bringing us back to the theme of the whole book. Jesus is greater than. He's greater than the law. He's greater than the old covenant. He's greater than the priests. He's the one who brings that grace into our lives. So the first mountain is Mount Sinai, verse 18. For you've not come to the mountain... That may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that they should not be spoken to them any more. This comes from Exodus chapter 19. God gives the law. He reveals himself to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. There's this dark cloud that's over Mount Sinai. There's fire upon the mountain. There's an earthquake, and there's also a boundary where God says, you can't cross this boundary. The only one that's allowed across and onto Mount Sinai is Moses, to the point where the boundary was so strong in verse 20, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so, as much as beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. So if your cow, your sheep, your dog crossed this boundary, they were to be killed. This was a great opportunity to get rid of your dog if you didn't like your dog. (laughs) Now let's be honest. Some of you are dog lovers, animal lovers, and some of you aren't. Maybe you just want to, it's time. You know what I'm saying? This is when you get the tennis ball and you just (laughs) throw the tennis ball across the boundary. There goes your dog. Time to go. You know, time to, time to shoot the dog. I would never do that, but it's sure fun to talk about. <laughs> sure, sure fun to think about. It's so intense here that they say, God, would you stop speaking to us? We can't handle the command. When the law was given, the very day it was given, it was broken before they even received it and 3,000 died, The temptation for the church of Hebrews was to go back to the law, to try to relate to God through the sacrificial system, through their own works. And what God is saying to them is, you haven't come to this mountain. This isn't how you relate to me. And look at what happened with this generation. This aspect of God's holiness, did it produce transformation? Did the law produce a changed life for the children of Israel? No way. They send in great ways. What, what changes us, what saves us, what transforms us is the grace of God. Is there a temptation for us to go back to Mount Sinai as well? Yes, because a rule-based relationship with God is attractive. Sometimes even as a pastor, you want me to get up here and give you rules instead of giving you Jesus, because that's easy. All right, here it is. The pastor really pounded me today. Thank you, you know. I'll come back for another spanking next week, right? You start to feel good about yourself because I did the rules. But when we're pointed to Jesus, sometimes that's not quite as attractive in in our hearts. There is a temptation to wanna go back to Mount Sinai. Verse 21, and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid, and trembling. This is Deuteronomy 9, verse 19. So, so Moses is in this place of fear and trembling. If you go back and you read Deuteronomy 9, he begins to pray for the children of Israel because God was gonna wipe all of them out because they had failed under the law. And God listened to the prayer of Moses. Here's the contrast. Now we come to the second mountain, Mount Zion. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels. As we read through the next few verses, maybe underline our circle all the time you see the word to, T-O. God's saying you've come to all of these things. You haven't come to Mount Zion, or excuse me, Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion was the hill in which Jerusalem was built upon. It's only referred to two times in the New Testament once here and once in Revelation. It also represents heaven, the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. At the throne room of God, there's an innumerable company of angels. Christ died in Jerusalem on Golgotha, Mount Moriah, right off side of the temple. And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we come to God's throne. The sacrifice of Christ brought us to a place that the law could never bring us. We're also brought to this large company, this company of angels that's so large you can't even number them. I can't wait to get to the throne room of God. It has captured my imagination, ultimately to see the Lord, but also this great cloud of witnesses, those that have gone before us, these angels that we can't even count. Let's contrast for just a moment Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai was marked by fear and terror. Mount Zion is a place of love and forgiveness. Mount Sinai is in the desert. Mount Zion is in the city of the living God. Mount Sinai spoke of earthly things. Mount Zion speaks of heavenly things. At Mount Sinai, only Moses was allowed to draw near to God. At Mount Zion, an innumerable company, a general assembly is invited to draw near to God. What an incredible contrast. Only Moses could come into the presence of God. But because of the new covenant, the grace of God were welcomed into the presence of God. Mount Sinai was characterized by guilty men in fear. Mount Zion features just men made perfect. At Mount Sinai, Moses was the mediator. At Mount Zion, Jesus is the mediator. Mount Sinai brings an old covenant which was ratified by the blood of animals. Mount Zion, a new covenant which is ratified by the blood of God's precious son. Mount Sinai was all about exclusion, keeping people away from the mountain. Mount Zion is all about invitation. Mount Sinai is all about the law. Mount Zion is all about grace. Isn't this such a creative way to communicate truth? We've got... Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. God was intentional about that. Here's where I'm gonna give the law. Then you've got Mount Zion in Jerusalem where he had preordained that his son would die and he's saying to us, what mountain are you gonna live on? Verse 23, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. So we have been brought to the throne room of God, but we've also been brought to the general assembly. When you receive Christ as your savior, you became part of the body of Christ as a whole, part of the church of the firstborn. The church means a group of people that are called out together to support a similar cause. I think of it a lot of way, the way that we root for a specific sports team, right? You get that group of people and now they're gathered together for their love for this particular team. Let's just say it for the orange and blue. We live in Colorado, right? How much more so... For Christ. We've been gathered together, not just this church family, not just Rocky Mountain Calvary, but all believers where we've been gathered to the church of God, where we're following Jesus Christ and we're registered in heaven. This encouraged me this week. As we go through life and there's the challenges of life, two things never stop, laundry and groceries. Just continue Gas always needs to be put in the car. The bills keep coming. You get sick. Deal with this, deal with that. Deal with my own sin, deal with sin of others. Trying to just make it through, make our way. And as we're on this journey, God says, hey, by the way, you're registered in heaven. Because of Mount Zion, because of what Jesus has done, his death and resurrection. See, God's really confident about his invitation. John 3, 16, You probably know it, but let me remind you, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You believe in Christ, and you know that you have everlasting life. You know that your name is registered in heaven. We're brought into this theme now of God's kingdom being unshakable. The fact that our name is written in heaven is unshakable. We're also brought to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. If someone doesn't approach Jesus Christ through Mount Zion, through Calvary, God being the judge is a terrifying thing, isn't it? But if you approach God through the blood of Jesus Christ, you can rest that God has given you forgiveness and not judgment, because that judgment has been taken by Jesus Christ. So we're brought to the judge. And he has made us just. He has justified us and he's made us perfect in the blood of Jesus Christ. Not that we're perfect on our own, but Christ is perfect and his righteousness is imputed to our account. We're brought to Jesus. Church, you're brought to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. You're not brought to rules and regulations. Isn't that wonderful? Christianity's not rules and regulations. It's a relationship with Jesus. You're brought to Jesus He's the mediator of the new covenant. He's the advocate of the new covenant and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel was martyred. Jesus was martyred. Abel's blood spoke of what? Spoke of judgment. It rose before God and God says, I see the blood that was shed and his blood spoke of judgment. But the blood of Jesus rised up before the father and it spoke of grace and mercy. God ordained the death of his son. He sent his son to die upon the cross. And that's why the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. Verse 25: See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they do not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Here's the important message. Jesus speaks from Mount Zion. Jesus speaks from from Calvary. It is finished, so don't refuse him who speaks. This is the key to the book of Hebrews is the importance of remaining in the confidence of the gospel. It's really important that you believed in Christ as your savior at the moment of your conversion and salvation, however long ago that was. But it's also important this morning that we trust Jesus Christ for our salvation, that we believe that he's God, that he died for us and he rose again, very simple application here in verse 25. Don't refuse Christ. Don't reject Christ. Because if you reject Christ, then there's certain judgment that is going to come. Really press into verse 26 and 27. I think it's going to be really encouraging. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now, this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Going back to Mount Sinai, God shook the earth. What Hebrews is saying is God's gonna shake the heavens. Why? To remove the things that can be shaken so that we'll focus on the things that can't be shaken, the things that remain. God is constantly in the business and the economy of shaking things up. Have you noticed that? My experience has been as soon as things start to get comfortable, they get comfortable for a few weeks, for a few months. God, in his love and his wisdom, says, Eric, I'm going to shake up your life a little bit. I'm going to cause things to not be comfortable anymore to get my heart back to the unshakable kingdom, to get my heart to focus on God's kingdom and the things that are eternal. How does this work out practically? Going through life, things are going good at work, you own your own business, it's growing, you're working for somebody, you're getting promotions, you're getting a few raises, all of a sudden you lose your job. All of a sudden your business drops off. What do we tend to then focus on? God, I thank you that heaven is not shaken by the loss of my job. God is not threatened by the fact that I just lost my job. When we hit the recession in 2008, all of a sudden the unshakable kingdom became a lot more real, didn't it? Gold prices were like 1600 an ounce. We go, oh yeah, in heaven the streets are paved with gold. We start to realize the world's economy can't affect the fact that God's kingdom is unshakable. God in his love will not allow us to get too comfortable and I think it's a healthy expectation. Because if we go through life and a lot of times we go, well, once I get to this point in life, things are gonna be easy. We all set little goals. If you're in high school or college, once I get out of college, things, things are gonna be set and, and things are gonna be smooth. You know, one, once my, all my kids are out of diapers, things are gonna be wonderful, right? <laughs> Let's have an out of diapers party, you know, and I can't wait till, till this. And then I talk to you that have older kids and you're like, just wait, just wait until they're teenagers you'd go back and change a thousand diapers, you know? (laughs) Some of you are like, well, once my kids are out of the house, you know, that's, that's gonna be great. Once I retire, I'm gonna get everything set and there's gonna be no problems. And then we're shocked, we're surprised. That's not, I think, the healthy mindset. Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulation. Why did he tell us that? So we would anticipate, okay, God, you're gonna continue to shake things up. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So our expectation's not in, well, things are gonna get easier, but our expectation is in, well, God, your is solid. You don't change. The kingdom of God is unshakable. That is something that can't be removed. And we look at verse 28. Therefore, since we've received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Meditate on that with me for just a moment. We are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. That's where our joy lies. Everything else in this life can and will be shaken, but the kingdom of God is unshakable. Jesus Christ is that rock that's stronger than any trial of this life. Since we've received that kingdom that can't be shaken, let us have grace, present tense, Grace is not just something past tense in our lives, this gift that God gives to us that we don't earn or deserve, but it's present tense. I need grace this morning. Do you agree? Do you need grace this morning? So having received grace, then this is the response to grace. Let's serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. See Mount Zion? Grace produces something that Mount Sinai could never produce, and that's a life that's been touched, a life that's been motivated, a life that's been changed, where we then respond to God's grace and we say, God, I want to serve you acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Think about it this way. This is Pastor Kent's analogy. I'm going to steal it from him. If you were in need of a heart transplant, let's say I needed a heart transplant and there was a man who was my exact same age, Married with four children. Living life much in the same way as I am. He gets in a car accident on I-25. He dies. On his driver's license, it says yes to being a donor. I get the phone call. My cell phone rings. I always have it on because my heart's failing me. Today's the day. Go to the hospital. They take out my heart. Crazy that they can do this. Take this man's heart who's just passed away. The heart is still beating. Boom, put it into my chest, and I've got a new lease on life. I've got the hope now that I'm gonna see my kids grow, grow into adulthood. What do you think my attitude would be towards that wife that lost her husband? To that mom and dad who lost their son? to those four kids who, who lost their dad. Appreciation beyond words. I would do whatever I possibly could to help that widow, to help those kids, to show respect to those parents. That's probably the greatest thing that we can think of on a human level, but how much more so that God gave his son. God gave himself so that I could be forgiven. And then based on this, Grace that I've received, it's not responsibility. It's simply response. It's simply, okay, God, you love me. You've forgiven me, so now I want to serve you. I hope you want to serve God. I hope the concept of serving God isn't this heavy burden. Or You, you hear this trip that's laid upon you. You better serve God or else. I hope you've been touched by grace. I hope I've been touched by grace. I hope this morning I'm floored that my sins are forgiven. I'm floored that... My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm registered in heaven. I'm blessed by those things. And then I respond and say, God, I wanna serve you. And there is a reverence there. And there is a godly fear there. But the reverence and the godly fear is built out of this expression of God's grace. And we end in verse 29. It says, for our God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire. And this works two ways. For someone who rejects Christ, God consumes them his judgment if you don't know christ as your savior you've never come to that point of putting your faith in jesus christ this is something that you should look at this morning and you should go this is serious this determines heaven or hell how do you go to heaven how do you become the child of god by realizing that you're a sinner and turning away from your sin and then accepting god's invitation of grace coming to calvary which is where jesus died upon the cross Calvary means the place of the skull because where Christ was crucified, the hill looked like a skull. And you come to the cross and you realize, Jesus, you died for me, you you rose again. I don't wanna be consumed in your judgment, I wanna be consumed in your love. But then for us as children of God, we don't have to fear the consuming fire of God. Yes, there's something about it that there's great reverence, but in the midst of God's fire is the warmth of his love where the best place for my life to be is in God's consuming fire. Saying, Lord, I want this. I desire this. I want you to burn away the things that are of me. Burn away the things that are, that are temporal and to allow me to hold on to those things that, that remain. It's scary to surrender, but we don't need to be scared because this is our loving father. He's not gonna do anything to us that's not the best thing for us. So let's seek to apply the scripture this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit. Is there someone that you need to forgive? Are you holding on to something this morning? And even as we were talking about bitterness, you were wrestling with the Lord and you're saying, nope, not going there. Oh, oh, I've forgiven. I'm all right. I've forgiven. God, break their teeth. Oh, I'm fine. You know, I'm over it. I hope I don't ever have to see them again. There's probably something deeper going on, isn't there? And God wants to set you free and you've got a choice to make. A choice of obedience, a choice of surrendering your will, a choice of saying, Jesus, you've forgiven me, so how can I not withhold forgiveness to them? How come I can't extend it and choose? Make the choice, not on your feelings, but right now say, God, I forgive them because you've forgiven me. I forgive them because of Jesus. Haven't they done enough hurt in your life? If someone's really wronged you and hurt you, haven't they done enough? And by choosing not to forgive, you're continuing to allow them to wreak havoc in your life, to bring the destruction ball on your life. We also need to put the shoe on the other foot. What if I've really sinned against somebody else and I know it? and I've caused a lot of trouble in their life, and maybe they're bitter over my actions, and it's time to go to them in a sincere and genuine apology and repentance. You know, I'm really sorry that I hurt you when I did this. And I'm gonna really try my best to not do that again in your life. God's in the business of breaking down walls. At least that's what my Bible says. With Jericho, he knocked down the walls. And I'm sure there's some walls this morning between husbands and wives where there's some offenses that go back a long ways. And God wants you to forgive and he wants you to express that forgiveness. There's some walls with children. God wants to break those down with parents, with friends, to allow there to be peace in relationships. It's a beautiful thing, but we've got to choose. We've got to let go. Do you want to be lighter? This morning, let the burden of bitterness go. Put it down at the cross. Put it down at the feet of Jesus. And then which mountain are we living on? Are we living on Mount Sinai? are we living on Mount Zion? Are we living in the law? Or are we living in grace? Do we have a law-based relationship with God? Okay, I've done my part. Now God, bless me. God's like, here's, here's a few crumbs Or do we come to the Lord and walk in the grace that we've received, the salvation that we've received? How are you saved in complete brokenness? God, I'm broken, I need you to forgive me. I need your offer, your invitation of grace and so we come to the Lord this morning and we continue to walk in grace and go God, this is a part of my life that's really broken. Lord, would you work in my life and pour your blessing upon my life for your glory by your grace? I don't want to pray as a church family. God bless Rocky Mountain Calvary based on the things that we do. That's a scary prayer to pray. That's a scary attitude to have. I want us to have the attitude as a church families. God, you know us. We're sinners and we're broken. And would you move in our lives by your grace? Would you allow our, our church to be a, a testimony of your grace? And then, as we are involved in the lives of people, which mountain are we taking them to? Are we taking them to rules? We're saying, you know what? You need to clean up your life. These are all the things that you need to do. are we taking them to Jesus? Are we taking them to the blood that's been sacrificed, their mediator? Because when they meet Jesus and the grace of God, then guess what? That's what transforms and changes. Wow, look at what Christ has done for you. Now you get to serve him. Not you have to serve him or else, but wow, he's given you a new heart. He's given you a new life. He's given you salvation. Now we get to respond and to forgive him, to forgive others as he's forgiven us. So, well, I'm done. Let's stand and pray. (laughs) Father, as we have opened up your word, we want to apply it. We don't want to just be hearers of your word, but we want to be doers and Through the power of your spirit, would you help us to know what it means to live at Mount Zion, to come to you, Jesus, to receive your grace, to walk in godly fear as we respond to your grace. We thank you for the unshakable kingdom that you have given to us. May you remind us of that as we do live in uncertain times. Lord, your kingdom is certain. Holy Spirit, would you show us where we're bitter? Would you you show us where we're still carrying things? May we find the joy of extending the grace that we've so freely received. God, you know hearts, you know those that haven't surrendered to you, that haven't said yes to you and received grace and salvation. We pray that today would be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name.